Welcome back to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the U.S. Today, we're talking about that pesky double vision and what you can do to figure out where it's coming from. Here are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku. I'm Dr. Deepan Kar. Hi, I'm Dr. Ravinder Rindala. And I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn. How was your guys' week? Well, we're back at work, me and Deepon. Yeah, we're back at work. Barely, though. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're only seeing like maybe a patient every hour. Maybe not even that. Um, wearing all that PPE. Yeah, Rav, you have to wear like actual headgear. I actually, so they gave us a face, face shield, but I can't see anything out of it when I'm doing behind the slit lap so my so my employer was like oh yeah we'll do face shields and I was like okay so how am I supposed to use the slit lamp or do anything that's important for my job they got us goggles instead now goggles do they leave marks around your face too um yeah but I only wear it when I like do the slit lamp like I don't wear it before Mm mm-hmm I so I had a lot of trouble wearing my face mask and the patient wearing a face mask and me doing a 90. Yeah. So I this like two minute part of the exam ends up taking me like seven to eight minutes. So I guess it's good we see a patient every hour. But (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. these are these are some pretty big adjustments that I didn't think about right away. So, yeah, that wasn't too fun. But, you know. At least we're grateful for being back. So yay. (laughs) Um, Okay, so let's get into double vision today. Double vision is a common complaint and symptom that many of our patients experience. And sometimes the cause can simply be an uncorrected refractive error, whereas other times it can be a lot more serious. So in today's episode, we wanted to discuss how to approach the management of simple to more complicated double vision patients using detailed case history questions and additional tests that you can try in your practice setting. So first of all, the assessment of the patient's perception of diplopia must exclude other symptoms that can be misunderstood by the patient, such as image distortion, a visual field defect, or after images such as ghosting and then determine whether it's monocular diplopia or binocular this happens a lot where people will come in to clinic and be like i have double vision and it's like no it's blurry vision (laughs) (laughs) not double vision no that happens i think that happens weekly for me yeah (laughs) that i have to i always i always start sweating when someone's like i have double vision i'm like no i don't want to take out all this prison and like all this stuff and this is exactly why we're doing this episode today so hopefully you guys do not sweat when your patient comes in saying i have double vision and i feel like that's a really good point deep on like the first thing that should come to your mind you should automatically be thinking, okay, first of all, is it actually double vision? That's like, that's like the first question that comes to my mind. But then when it is actually double vision, then I start sweating and I'm like, (laughs) no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What kind of questions do you ask your patient to make sure that it's double vision versus like distortion or a visual field? So I'll actually hold up my hands and be like, is, are you seeing two separate 
images of this or like I'll be like okay what 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 like, are do you see two of my hands yeah here when I show you yeah one hand. okay and then they'll you know 80 percent of the time they're actually like no it's just like it's just blurry or this is distorted or something else so it's from my experience 80 percent of the time it's not actually double vision they just say it's double vision um yeah. I do that too and then I'm also like does it happen with your glasses on or without your glasses on is a big thing because I have yeah. there's a lot of people it tends to be elderly people I've noticed that they're like you know my vision has changed it's just blurry I'm like well when you wear your glasses does it make it clear yes <laughs> that's one of my biggest pet peeves too. like I can't I don't understand that I don't like or they'll be like my vision is getting worse you know much worse and it's like with your glasses no my glasses is fine I'm like okay let's okay let's keep on going let's just keep let's keep let's moving. keep moving basically let's you're done you're done for today <laughs> yeah so the first thing you always want to ask your patient is when you cover one eye does it go away if it goes away when they cover an eye obviously it's binocular and then you can start to do your tests um, that will mention to figure it out if they cover an eye and it's still there, you know it's monocular. So something's going on. So monocular diplopia is often caused by uncorrected refractive error. So especially with patients that have high astigmatism. Um, and another a major cause is cataracts. I feel like those are the most or the common ones. Um, a really high astigmatism because the images start stretching out from one another. And then cataracts too. Also dryness. Yes, and dryness, dry eye. So um, with cataracts, you can get like the decreased visual acuity and the haze that can appear as diplopia. And the type of cataract is mainly the cortical type of cataract that causes the haze a little bit more. So you can have macular disorders that can cause metamorphopsia, uh, which, are, which is evaluated through the Amsler grid. Other causes, as um, Devon and Alex mentioned, um, dry eyes is a big one. Also, um, contact lenses that don't fit well, um, any irregular corneal surfaces, um, keratoconus, um, any abnormalities of the iris, so iridodialysis, polychoria, any large um, iridotomies, vitreous opacities can also cause monocular diplopia, and um, IOL subluxation. So I found a really good thorough article online about like a step-by-step approach to evaluating monocular diplopia. And um, you kind of pretty much start from like the front of the eye and then you rule out all the causes as you go towards the back of the eye. So if someone's complaining of monocular diplopia, the best thing you can do first is just put the pinhole right in front of them and ask them, does it go away when you look through this pinhole? If it doesn't go away you know that there um, could be some sort of maculopathy, so something in the back of the eye that's causing it to, to occur. If it does go away, now you know it could be one of the following structures, and very similar to what Rav already kind of mentioned, so we'll just briefly go through it from like front to back. So if it does resolve with pinhole, check their refractive error for the astigmatism. Check their eyelids for any eyelid growth or tumors that could be mechanically compressing the cornea. Check their tear film and for dry eye disease. Check their cornea for any corneal opacities or scars that could be um, affecting 
their visual access and also if they've had like a post-refractive surgery. Then you want to check their lens to see if there's any subluxation or any cataracts developing. Checking their iris for the abnormalities that Rav mentioned. For any sort of iridotomy, you can also check to see if the lid, if the eyelid completely covers the iridotomy or if it covers it partially because then you'll know if that's the true cause. And then check for any vitreous foreign, uh, foreign bodies. If none of those things are showing up, once again, like, you know, check the macula, take an OCT scan of the macula and see if there's any sort of um, distortion in the retina that's causing it. Now, I found this really interesting that was mentioned in the article, if the monocular diplopia is in both eyes. This is when which... I would be very scared. <laughs> if that oh, I think I would give up my license and be like, I can't, I can't practice anymore. I don't, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Here. But yeah, if the monocular diplopia is in both eyes, this is quite rare, but it can be associated with um, a psychological disorder or cerebral polyopia. Cerebral polyopia is basically the perception of multiple images due to some pathology in the occipital cortex or somewhere along the, the visual pathway. So if your patient covers an eye and the double vision goes away, then this could be binocular diplopia. And so case history questions are crucial because it will help guide your diagnosis of what's causing the diplopia before you even start your testing. So it'll really help you narrow down like what test do I need to do? Where do I need to look to figure this out? One of the main questions you want to ask is how long have you had the double vision for? Um, so this is important for determining if, if the double vision is longstanding versus an acute occurrence. So a, an acute onset is more suggestive of a vascular event, but is not very specific. And the gradual progression of di diplopia that has changed patterns over time is more indicative of a compressive lesion. Yeah, usually I feel like um, acute could also be trauma, but I feel like you can, you know, if your patient says I had a car accident or something, I feel like you can easily put the pieces together. Yeah. Um, and the patient usually comes in pretty distraught, too. They'll be like, what just happened oh, yeah. to me? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, oh, okay. Another important question to ask is, are the two images, are they separated horizontally, vertically, or diagonally? Anytime a patient says it's um, separated horizontally, so that kind of suggests any medial rectus or um, lateral rectus dysfunction, such as a sixth nerve palsy, also INO, so the intranuclear ophthalmoplegia, any horizontal diplopia that tends to appear after doing long um, near work, that tends to point towards more CI. Any vertical um, diplopia can suggest a fourth nerve palsy or skew deviation. So kind of a little bit of review of the skew, skew deviation. Um, that's when one eye is, is in torsion and the other one is extorsion, right? Yeah, there are actually a few interesting factors that make skew deviation different from a fourth nerve palsy. So as skew deviation results from vestibular dysfunction, typically when you perform the cover test in a supine position, the vertical posture will actually decrease by 50% or more compared to what you measured in primary gaze when sitting upright. Um, and if it was a regular fourth nerve palsy, the vertical posture should stay the same or be quite similar 
in upright and supine. Also, in skew deviation, the hyper eye tends to have in cyclotorsion and the hypo eye will be excyclotorted. So that's also a big differentiating factor from a fourth nerve palsy where the hyper eye is always excyclotorted. And obviously, if it's a monocular fourth nerve palsy, the fellow eye wouldn't be affected at all. So yeah. Um, you can also have vertical diplopia and with anyone that has any thyroid eye disease. So remember, with thyroid eye disease, the inferior rectus muscle is the one that's most commonly infect, affected first. Um, also, uh, with anyone with orbital floor fracture or any supranuclear or infranuclear brain lesions. I know we always talk about, I just want to make sure it's clear with you guys too. So we always talk about thyroid, uh, like thyroid disease and how it can create that problem, but it's not thyroid disease. It's hyperthyroid disease because hypo doesn't create a problem with. It can, but uh, less common. Graves disease is more common to cause thyroid eye disease compared to Hashimoto's. Okay. So I always wonder, because I feel like most of the time when they say uh, thyroid disease, most people have hypo, but yet all, like most of the symptoms are Mm. hyper that they talk about. That's, that's good to point out. Mm -hmm. Another great question to ask, is it worse at distance or near? Distance indicates that it could be a lateral rectus dysfunction or divergence issue, um, whereas a near problem would be medial rectus dysfunction or convergence issue. The next question you can ask your patient is in which direction does the double vision get worse? So if they are getting diplopia in up gaze, and especially if it's vertical diplopia, then it could likely be a third nerve palsy or even just an inferior oblique overaction. Vertical diplopia in down gaze is going to be more likely a fourth nerve palsy or skew deviation. And if the patient really doesn't know and reports that the diplopia kind of gets worse here and there in different directions and kind of everywhere and all over the place, that's when you're probably going to start considering some more systemic diseases or orbital inflammation like like Graves' disease, myasthenia gravis, or multiple sclerosis, especially if the diplopia varies during the day and gets worse throughout the end of the day. Then, once again, more suggestive of uh, systemic conditions. And then you want to ask them if they have a history of congenital strabismus or surgery or a head turn. So usually comitant deviations do not induce diplopia due to cortical suppression. So um, this usually happens with patients that have congenital strabismus. And then just as a review, comitant deviations will be equal in all directions when you do your cover test. The head turn will tell you if it's been long-standing. And then adult onset of diplopia could be decompensation from childhood strabismus. So you kind of also want to ask your patients if they're having any associated pain, headache, or any other neurological symptoms. So sometimes with the nerve palsies uh, due to vascular conditions, you can also get headaches. So um, vascular conditions, we're talking about hypertension, diabetes, or GCA. Um, I know that with if a patient has high blood pressure or diabetes and they're complaining of headaches and they have the diplopia, you're supposed to send them out for an MRI. But if they don't have the associated headaches, then you can just kind of monitor them. Mm-hmm. It tends to resolve by three to six months. 
Yes. Yeah. I want to talk about is like I had a patient. So this is during um, rotation. So he had a uh, cranial nerve six palsy. So we saw him. We told him to wear an eye patch. He had high blood pressure and he had uh, and diabetes. And then he comes back and then he's complaining of a headache. And oh. we're like all worried. We're like, oh shoot, like this is something more serious. But then we realized that he was having these headaches that were more towards the end of the day because he wasn't wearing the patch. And he was just closing his eye all day long. <laughs> so that's a very important uh, thing you want to ask your patients too. Are they wearing the eye patch or are they just like shutting their eye all day long? Because yeah. that will cause a headache. Or if they just don't wear the eye patch and they're seeing double all day. I get a headache if we start that doing. That would give you a headache Yeah, probably, that would I'm give sure. me a headache. Yeah. I feel like those kind of cases where you know the patient doesn't tell you the whole story yeah. and then you kind of jump to all these conclusions yeah. that happens every a day lot, i feel like because you're just especially if you don't probe further every single time and you're like well like that's so simple that's not that's something i wouldn't even think about to ask the patient to be like have you been wearing your ipad because yeah. that's like a therapy we discussed at the last appointment where you'd be like okay i'm assuming you're doing yeah that, side but... note that's a lesson that i've really learned a couple of times throughout optometry school yeah ask really thorough questions at your follow-up visits after you've given treatment option because half the time the patient says well it still doesn't feel better and you're just kind of like okay let's try this instead but i sometimes yeah. i forget to ask well have you tried xyz and ask it very thoroughly like how many times have you done it when's the last time all that stuff i tend to have that happen with like warm compresses people dryness Mm -hmm. and they're saying oh i'm doing everything and it's not working i ask them open-ended question i'm like so how do you do warm compresses yeah and how many times do you do like i do it how do you wear the patch on your face (laughs) yeah yeah like but really though i mean if you let them tell you instead of you saying do you wear the patch on this side you know because they'll say yes i do that rather than you know yeah kind of what they're yeah and that's very important for amblopia too you want to ask the patient which eye can you show me which eye you patch and it's it's yep. always sometimes when it's they don't, they don't improve, it's always the wrong eye <laughs> <Yep>. they're patching. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so once you've asked all your patients these um, thorough questions, that should already give you an idea of what you're thinking is causing the double vision. And the following tests that we're going to talk about are pretty much um, suggestions of things that you can try to see if it helps you identify the cause. So first thing you always want to do is check their glasses and make sure they're aligned, (laughs) especially if they have progressives or really high astigmatism. This is true. So many elderly patients (laughs) will be like, I have double vision. And then you literally just lift their glasses like a little bit and they'll be like, oh, it's gone. And you're like, okay, great. I think it's actually not even for progressives. Um, I think line bifocals. Yeah, Because if they're looking right through that line – it's over. It's yeah. game over for them. So so yeah, definitely adjust their glasses first and see if that really helps the problem. Especially if they say they, they have double vision with their glasses on. That, that could be a good indicator. Um, I think the first thing that everyone is probably thinking about when they hear about double vision is cover test. Let me check if you have a strabismus. Let me check if you have something weird going on. 
So you pull out your prism bar and your occluder. You're, you're going to normally, in every primary care exam, right, check their primary gaze cover test at distance and near. But you can also do it objectively, or sorry, you can also do it subjectively with a Maddox rod to let the patient tell you what they see in their eye alignment, especially if they have like a small vertical that you're not noticing in your cover test. Um, so Maddox rod is a really good idea. And then a lot of people um, have heard of doing cover tests in nine fields of gaze. That is definitely a very long test to do and very difficult to do. I would recommend at least at the bare minimum, if your patient complains of double vision in any gaze that is not primary gaze, I would at least check cover test in that area, right? Yeah, like if I they, think, yeah. I think that's what we were taught in our rotations because I know in school everyone was taught to do the cover test in the nine fields of gaze. Yeah, it's a lot. That's like that. I remember when I practiced that, that took me almost an hour. And I was like, oh, so my appointments will be like three hours long for each patient that comes in like this. But that's exactly what my preceptor told me for my rotation. They're like, just check it in um, primary gaze, but also in the gaze that they're struggling with and then just move on from there because you're not going to have that time to check Mm -hmm. all nine, especially if you're in private practice. So yeah, you want to do this test because that will help you to figure out if this is a competent or non-competent deviation. Basically, is it acute within the last three months or is it longstanding? And if you want to do a cover test in different fields of gaze, the difference between two gazes, if it's more than about like 10 prism diopters, it's likely non-competent and acute. So like if you're comparing primary gaze to left gaze and there's a difference of 10 prism diopters, it's probably acute. Um, What else you could do that's a little bit faster than nine fields of gaze is checking primary and secondary fixation. In my opinion, the easiest way to do this would be to perform your cover test with the Maddox rod twice. So the first time you can put the red lens over the right eye. So we're doing left eye fixation and you can measure their cover test in primary gaze and then you can repeat the test with the red lens over the left eye so now we're doing red eye fixation and again if if you do cover test twice and there is a difference of again 10 prism diopters it's likely acute and non-competent and there's something going on okay well with the medics rod you can only do near so i guess you have to do prism bar for distance You can actually do Maddox rod for distance. Um, You just wouldn't use that modified Thorington. If they're they're looking at a bright light far away and they have the red line um, over Uh... one eye, you have to use your prism bar now to say, tell me when the red line goes over the white light. Uh... And so then you're basically, you're physically measuring how much it takes. Okay. The modified Thorington yeah. card is really nice at near, near because if yes. you do it at 40 centimeters, it's already measured out how many prism diopters on the card. I completely forgot this. Yeah. <laughs> this is really good review. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So once you've identified any sort of strabismus, then, you know, based on your case history, you're more likely to figure out what it is, like if it's some sort of a nerve palsy. But let's say you still can't figure it out. And the patient's still complaining that they have double vision in a certain gaze. So versions testing, not vergences, but versions, 
is a really good test that you can perform quickly in all nine fields of gaze to isolate the affected muscle or muscles and help you consider your differentials. So versions is done binocularly, often with, without their glasses, and you just use a transilluminator and you watch their corneal reflexes while you move the transilluminator around. It is not like EOMs, but it's similar. So you have them follow a pen light and you're basically make, making a box instead of an H around their eyes. And then you basically move with the transluminator so that you can just check their corneal reflexes to make sure they're still aligned the whole way through. <laughs> Versions will show you if any muscle is overacting or underacting, right? And then ductions comes into play after versions. Ductions is done monocularly, and you guys probably heard of this as forced duction test, which is often done under anesthesia because they have to take these forceps, grab the conge, and literally physically shove the eye to see if it moves. And realistically, we're not going to do that on our patients. I don't think anyone does that in... <laughs> clinic um there is more of a an alternative ductions test that you can do that still gives you a lot of information but of course it's not that gold standard ductions test right so let's say we have to give an example for for you guys to really think about this test let's say for example a patient is looking into left gaze and their right medial rectus is let's say under active that's on versions. OU, both eyes are open. What you can do in that problematic gaze is have them look again in left gaze. Cover the eye that's not an issue. Like basically, you don't care about the eye that's not giving you a problem, right? So you're actually going to cover the left eye while she's still in left gaze. Check that right eye to see if it moves any closer to the pen light. Even if it's any amount of movement, it would be a neurological restriction, mm -hmm. something affecting cranial nerve three. Adductions test is positive when there's no movement. So let's say you cover that left eye, she's looking in left gaze, and the right eye still never moves. It's like frozen. That's a positive ductions test where something mechanically is restricting that muscle from moving so that's physically not able to move. And for anyone who wants a physical example of a versions versus ductions test, on our Instagram post, we did post a picture of a patient that had a bilateral fourth nerve palsy. And I posted a picture of me doing versions versus ductions. And the explanation is in there too. So go check it out if you want a little bit more um, of a visual of what I just explained. That's a lot more traumatizing than, or that's a lot less traumatizing than the forced deduction yeah. test. Yeah, yeah. I feel like if I were to do the force duction, that would probably cause like a subconscious. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. <laughs> I know that's that's what I was always afraid of. Very basic things that everyone does again: check their vergence ranges and check their NPC to make sure you don't um, have any convergence or divergence, insufficiency or excess. Your vertical vergence ranges are important because if they have a vertical strabismus or vertical phoria. Expanded vertical ranges indicates a long-standing vertical strabismus. Parks three-step. Have any of you done Parks three-step? 
during rotations, just once, but oh, at the V okay. at the VA, yeah. one person and who was at the VA with us had to do Parks Three, and she told the attendant she remembered how to do it, and she had to Google it and ask us how to do it because she completely <laughs> forgot. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> Parks Three Step is used mostly for only diagnosing an SO palsy or fourth fourth nerve palsy. If you circle any other muscle on that test, it's basically inconclusive. So that doesn't mean that if you circled something like an IR muscle, it does not mean it's an IR palsy. You need to do the other tests to figure it out. I think that's why I don't like park three step because I'm like, is it going to be worth it to do this? <laughs> Will this help me figure it out? It's, but, it's pretty quick though, really. Well, the other thing is I feel like a lot of people forget how to do the test and they just can't remember. So idoc.com has a really, really good platform where you could just ask all three questions, put in right or left. Don't You don't even have to think about it and it just tells you which muscle it is and you're like, all right, good to go. So there's a lot of apps like that um, yeah. on your phone. Those are pretty much the main tests you can do for double vision and you don't have to do every single one. Your case history will basically tell you what test to do to figure it out. I had my text, they come up to me this last week and they asked me, so how do you figure out or how do you know which muscle goes with which nerve? And I was like, oh, it's cool. They taught us this really simple way to know it. SO4, LR6, yeah. the rest is three. And they're like, that's yeah. not simple. <laughs> they're like, that's not a good jingle. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, it's good. We could remember. <laughs> So the next thing we want to talk about is what we should be ruling out when someone comes in with double vision. So post-operative diplopia, also known as intractable diplopia. So this basically means the diplopia cannot achieve fusion and one eye must be occluded for relief. So some patients may develop double vision after surgical procedures such as refractive cataract glaucoma strabismus or retinal detachment surgeries i was just going to say the use of scleral buckles for retinal detachment may cause diplopia due to the injury of the extraocular muscles and also diplopia can be present following strabismus surgery in patients who are overcorrected yeah um younger patients can suppress the de- suppress the deviation unlike adults or if the suppression was before surgery they might not be able to shift it intractable diplopia basically occurs because something happened externally right so mainly surgery that is now causing both eyes to see clearly or for both eyes to see something that they cannot fuse together anymore so especially for patients that are now going to go through a refractive surgery or cataract surgery, something that is basically permanent and likely not reversible, um, you want to check for their eye dominancy first. See if they actually have a preferred seeing eye because that tells you that you might not want to correct the other eye, their weaker eye, because if you do and you make them see clearly out of it, they're going to stop suppressing, they're going to see double vision, and they're probably not going to like it, and it's irreversible. And I don't think this is going to come up every day in your chair, but if you have a patient who's 
binocular vision status is already a little iffy, I think those are the people that you might want to caution a little bit more about getting cataract surgery or refractive surgery. Um, and you might want to refer them out for BV testing to see, you know, is this surgery that they're going to get going to cause them more issues? Also, I do think it's important to make sure you check the patient's dominant eye because when I'm fitting contact lenses, especially like monocular or multifocals, mm-hmm. I always check the dominant eye. Most patients, even up here, which we do a lot of like shooting and mainly shooting. And so people think they know what their dominant eye is. And then I test that and it's usually opposite or some, there's a few times they're spot on, but a lot of times they they don't know. Yes. Even though they that's think a really it, good point too. Unless it's like for glaucoma or retinal detachment, because you sometimes have to do those surgeries. So yeah, you have to. But yeah. those um, refractive what's it called elective surgeries like LASIK. Yeah, elective. So another thing you want to rule out is any orbital disease. So you want to be checking out for any proptosis, any edema, um, any lid retraction, uveitis, um, injection. So again, like asking your case history about any um, thyroid, especially hyperthyroidism, um, sarcoidosis, lupus, arthritis, um, again, your signs of GCA. And then what can we do for patients that have double vision? The management of diplopia must be according to what is causing it. Yeah, so I would always trial the prism in office, have them walk around and see, you know, if it gets better with that. Um, If, you know, occlusion is still an option for some patients, depending on their situation, like if it's more of an acute onset and we expect it to go away. For anyone that has diplopia due to a vascular condition, I feel like prism is not the best option because as time progresses, it slowly gets better. You would, they will constantly need well, updated glasses or they can get the Fresnel prism. You also don't want to give, I wouldn't give prism to pa- the patients that are like, my double vision's like everywhere and it changes mm-hmm. every two seconds because, you know, then they end up buying glasses that are, that won't work in like a week or something. Um, so I would just go with patching for in that kind of case. But like if they already have prism in their glasses, and if they're 100% okay with everything, don't change it. <laughs> don't change it unless they're having, like, symptoms. Don't Even if they, you know, if the double vision has become worse, but they're not noticing yeah. anything, don't <laughs> change it. Because then you're just going to cause so yeah. many follow-ups for yourself. And, yeah. Another option, too, though, what we do, my dad and I do in our clinic, is we have Fresnel prism. And so if it is vascular-related we will start with Fresnel and then have them come back and then decrease the Fresnel as it gets better kind of thing. Um, and that helps a lot. We actually had a patient that had a pretty important job that he need, needed basically both eyes for that job because he was assisting in surgeries. So um, the Fresnel prism helped that person out a lot. That's a good point though. Like for those, I never thought about that. For those patients that need binocular vision Fresnel prism is a really good option because it's cheaper than just getting prism in your glasses but even like um instead of like an eye patch even just taping putting like frosted tape on the patient's lenses if they already wear glasses that's another good option for the patient that looks a little bit better than an eye patch 
I just remember the sticky note. Or the post-it note. What interview was that from? That was with Dr. Lee. <laughs> the post-it note. Dr. Oh Lee. Dr. Lee said that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Obviously for patients that have had oh some sort of long-standing double vision due to any sort of strabismus that's decompensated, PRISM is a really great option for those patients. And another interesting thing about PRISM, have that conversation with your patient again and again that prism is not available in contact lenses oh yeah i feel like it is the hardest <laughs> conversation when your patient needs prism but they love wearing contacts that's like yeah. the hardest there is prism have. in contact lenses but not for why not not for what you need it for exactly so uh and for your patient especially for anyone that has like decompensated phoreas uh don't want to forget vision therapy for them as well yeah Vision therapy is probably going to be beneficial for a lot of these patients who um, do not have diplopia from like a, you know, a vascular disease or a systemic disease where mm-hmm. the diplopia is always changing. However, even in those types of patients, like patients who have Parkinson's disease, for example, even though their condition is progressive and it gets worse, we actually still offer vision therapy to those patients and we have particular patients at our clinic who have Parkinson's that do VT constantly um, throughout the years to maintain the level of um, binocular vision that they have so that it doesn't progress as quickly with their disease. So um, it's still an option that you can give to them and see if that's something that they want to pursue. Vision therapy is always a great option for them too. Thank you to everyone for listening to Four Eyes. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating to give us feedback on how we're doing. You can also check us out on Instagram at Four Eyes Optum for more content. Look out for new episodes every Wednesday. So until then, stay tuned. Stay tuned.